This episode was recorded during the 2023 SAG-AFTRA strike. Without the labor of the actors currently on strike, shows like The Muppet Show wouldn't exist. You can learn more at sagafterstrike.org. If you'd like to support the striking workers, please go to entertainmentcommunity.org. Oh, mama, it's Muppeturgy, and we're here to talk about the Dudley Moore episode of The Muppet Show. Yay. Beep, boop, boop, beep. Yay. Hey, everyone. Welcome back. So glad that you're here. Hope you missed us. We missed you. I'm David Levy. Here today with me are Adam Grossworth, Christy Bauer, and Michal Richardson. I have a feeling that we have perhaps misunderstood the question. We have a bunch of follow-up from the Victor Borga episode. Uh, a listener with the Twitter handle Swedish Marcus DM'd us on Twitter and said, I'm listening to the beginning of your newest episode on Victor Borga, and you said that Sweden and Denmark have never been to war or anything. It's true. I did say that. If there's one country Sweden has been to war with, it's Denmark. We have, in fact, been at war with one another around 30 times, beating the French and English, who have been at war a total of 16 times. It was mostly wars about the ownership of a region in southern Sweden called Skin. Hope I pronounced that correctly. It was either that or the ownership of Norway, which went back and forth. This is the kind of pedantry we live for. Thank you, Swedish Marcus. Amazing. Thank you, Swedish Marcus. Also in the Victor Borg episode, during the discussion of Macho Man, I explained the significance of leather pigs to gay culture, but neglected to discuss the meaning of chicken in gay slang. <laughs> Uh, in short, chicken is slang for young or young-looking gay men as the objects of desire to chicken hawks, or older, more experienced, and occasionally predatory men who chase after them. While the language of leather pigs is still very much in use in the gay community, I think chicken and chicken hawks have sort of been left in the past, more or less replaced by concepts like twinks and chasers, although that's not an exact analog. So does that mean that Gonzo is a chicken hawk in this yes. setting? Okay, great. Uh, we also got an email from listener Nathan Campbell, who says, have you ever been in a Walgreens and spied a large picture that appears to have been taken in the 1950s behind the cashier and thought to yourself, you know, that sure looks an awful lot, lot like Victor Borga. I have. For years, I've seen this photo at our local store and a few others. I decided to research it. Sure enough, it's Victor Borga. And uh, by the time you are hearing this, uh, we're recording this before the Victor Borga episode has come out. So you may have already seen this photo on the Victor Borga show page and uh, a link to uh, more details about the terms chicken and chicken hawk because we're just that detailed uh, we love hearing from you thank you both and thank you all and you can reach us uh, there's a link on our website there's a form on our website there's twitter there's instagram there's blue sky keep those muppeturgy at right? yeah the old fashioned way what is Victor Borga doing in the photo behind the Walgreens cashier he appears to be working like behind the counter, but like, you know, as a gag, I, I don't think he actually worked at Walgreens. All right. Yeah. He's selling Cornish gay men's. That's what it looked like <laughs> from the photo. He I don't like want to buy a Cornish game, game hen at Walgreens. <laughs> Just putting that out there. Mm. I mean, they sell sushi. <laughs> yeah. Let me just say, I wouldn't swear yeah. to never having eaten Walgreens yeah, sushi. Same. The Walgreens near my office that sold sushi has closed, and the one near my home does not, fortunately, sell sushi. Anyway. Here is a Muppet News Flash. We are here this week to talk about Season 4, Episode 7 of The Muppet Show. It was produced the week of June 12th, 1979, and aired in New York on October 22nd, 1979. Uh, that was number five in the air order. In the UK, this was actually the season premiere and the first episode to air after the ITV strike of 1979. Other than the news, The Muppet Show was actually the first uh, thing to air uh, at all after the strike. Uh, this is timely and relevant to both this episode and as we're recording this, our current situation in Hollywood. Elsewhere in the news, so I had the date wrong in our uh, spreadsheet where we tracked this stuff. And so I started reading the wrong newspaper that I had, in fact, already read. But there were two things from October 1st that uh, that I want to mention that we didn't mention on whatever episode that was. Um, one, because it's highly relevant, and one, because it amused me. Um, the relevant one is that City Opera here in New York suspended their schedule indefinitely because of a musician's dispute. Uh, so this was technically not a strike. It was a lockout. They knew that a strike was probably coming. So uh, the opera... Uh, shut out the uh, musicians over issues like salaries, benefits, and pension. Um, this is, again, very relevant to today's episode that we're discussing. 
and it was during Beverly Sills' first season as general director of the company, and we will be talking about her later this season. Um, the lockout only lasted a week, fortunately. And elsewhere on October 1st, Canada tests direct TV service by satellite to remote regions. Residents of Northern Ontario will be receiving educational television direct from Toronto via satellite and their own four-foot receiving dishes mounted outdoors. When Doreen King turned on her set outside McDermott, Ontario, almost 300 miles north, northeast of Duluth last week, she got a beautiful picture. It was in color, bright colors, she related in a telephone interview. It was called Sesame Street. The kids loved it. This television is wonderful. Aww. Right? Yay, TV. So this television is wonderful. How yeah. could I not share that? <laughs> in actually this week's news, once again, October 22nd, 1979, <laughs> Bon welcomes Hua in low-key fashion, reflecting unease. This is about the leader of China visiting West Germany, and West Germans feared that he may make remarks that will harm their Soviet ties. I just enjoyed when they welcome him in a low-key fashion, which sounds very German. <laughs> Uh, Moshe Dayan resigns as foreign minister of Israel. We discussed him on the Diane Cannon episode. He hung up his eye patch. <laughs> I don't think he did. <laughs> He's wearing it in the photo. Was it just for show? No. He really did lose an eye. <laughs> uh, again, more labor stuff uh, on this week of all weeks. The Times of London strike ends. Uh, in New York, Mayor Koch's performance wins mixed reviews. Remember when we had mayors who got mixed reviews instead of just bad reviews? <laughs> it's been so long. No, no, I don't remember. <laughs> Effects are disputed as migrants continue Ohio tomato walkout. <laughs> Labor again. And I, oh, not the tomatoes. It sounds like walking. the tomatoes are walking out. Yeah, I know. It's very. Uh, the JFK Presidential Library is open. There is an ad for the Chase Money Card. It looks like a credit card, but acts like a check. So it's a debit card, but this was a whole new concept. And I actually thought those came around later because I like I thought we had ATM cards that you could only use to take out cash that became debit cards later is my memory of things. Well, but maybe they just got popular later. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and there's also a great ad for Gene Dixon's horoscopes by phone. Uh, this will, of course, all be in the show notes. In movies, 10 is in theaters uh, again some more, which uh, we will be talking about more shortly. Uh, something called Avalanche Express. When he stepped aboard this train, the most powerful man in Europe became the most dangerous man in the world, starring Robert Shaw, Lee Marvin, and Linda Evans. And I found the trailer, and it's the weirdest trailer I've ever seen. It's all still shots with like dialogue from the movie over the stills. It's bizarre. I thought about watching it, and then I watched that trailer and was like, no, I'm good. Eh. In theater, there is... Something called Devour the Snow, colon, a new play, which just sounds like a joke. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it ran for 13 performances, including previews. So I guess it was. I guess they successfully devoured the snow and that was it. Yes, that was it. They ran out of snow. They ran out of money to make the snow. <laughs> uh, on Cashbox, uh, the number one song is Sail On by the Commodores. And the number one album is The Long Run by the Eagles. And on our friend television, which is wonderful. It is. <laughs> Channel 9 has uh, the movie Bringing Up Baby. But uh, once again, the person who writes the TV listings of the New York Times has done too much cocaine. The description is broad belly laughs and the kind they don't make anymore. Not these two ultras. Anyway, Katie and Carrie. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Here's Wonderwall. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> On TBS, we have It's the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown, and the Fat Albert Halloween special. Uh, I'm a little offended because it's the 22nd, which means these could air on a Monday night one week later and be on the 29th, and that is better. How do you know they didn't? Well, I guess I don't. I guess we'll find out at some point. You're saying this from a world where it, it is, uh, as we record this, late August, and the Halloween stuff is all in the stores, yes. and uh -huh. the and pumpkin refuse, spice has started to invade. I refuse to accept it. I don't mind the pumpkin spice, but but like the, the, the TV special should air as close to the holiday as possible, is what I'm saying. This, I believe. Don't you need to get in the mood? It's the reason for the season, you know? <laughs> all right. Well, MASH, WKRP in Cincinnati, and Lou Grant were on after that. Anyway, here's MASH. You know, <laughs> at synagogues, they blow the shofar for an entire month leading up to Rosh Hashanah. This is not like a uniquely American thing. Well, that like... you do have to get in the mood for. You can't just up and repent with no preparation. <laughs> well, yeah, you got to 
you got to practice your shofaring to make sure you get it right on the night. Like <laughs> it's hard. It's, it's, it's not unique to want to to have some lead up to the big the big day. Kings in the field, motherfuckers. On ABC two four zero Robert and Monday Night Football on NBC, our old friend Little House on the Prairie and a TV movie and Baby Makes Six. A couple faces a dilemma when the 46-year-old wife unexpectedly becomes pregnant. She wants to have the baby, but her husband has plans for the future that do not involve raising another child. This starred Colleen Dewhurst and Timothy Hutton, and there was a whole article about it in the Times, which I did not read. Uh, I did, while this section was going on, look up the Times review to Devour the Snow, a new play. Oh, yeah. It actually got like oh. a, a fairly positive review. It's sort of shocking that it did not last. Huh. Uh, here's how it ends. Grim. Yes, emotionally overboard sometimes, but there's a gift at work here. Oh. I don't think that gift ever had another Broadway show, so (laughs) there you go. Damn. Our special guest is one of England's brightest stars of music and comedy, Mr. Dudley Moore. Dudley Moore, comedian, pianist, actor. Dudley Stuart John Moore was born in Dagenham, England in 1935. As a child, he sang in a local choir, and by 11, he was studying a number of different musical instruments, as well as composition at the Guildhall School of Music. That led him to Oxford on a music scholarship, where he also began performing as a comic actor alongside Alan Bennett, who you might know as the playwright of the History Boys. This was also when Dudley shifted his musical interests towards jazz, which led him to playing in John Dankworth's band. You might remember John Dankworth's name from the Cleo Lane episode. He was her husband, and in fact, Moore and Lane would record together in later years. In 1960, Moore left Dankworth's band to be part of a new comedy group with his friend Alan Bennett called Beyond the Fringe, along with Jonathan Miller and Peter Cook. As you've probably gathered from our episodes about Peter Sellers, Spike Milligan, and John Cleese, the 60s were a good time for British satirists, and Beyond the Fringe was enormously successful on the West End and then on Broadway, netting the team a special Tony Award. Following the show's Broadway run, Dudley Moore was offered a BBC series called Not Only, But Also. He brought along Peter Cook, whose guest appearance was so successful he became a regular, and they became a team. They made the jump to film with the British film The Wrong Box in 1966, and made an even bigger impression the following year with Bedazzled, which they both co-wrote and co-starred in, with the female lead, Muppet Show guest star Raquel Welch. Moore also composed the jazzy score to the film, which he performed with his band, the Dudley Moore Trio. He would go on to record a number of albums with the trio and to score a number of films over the next two decades. As the 70s rolled around, Cook's alcoholism put a strain on their relationship, but they continued to perform together, next in a new edition of Beyond the Fringe called Behind the Fringe, which came to the U.S. under the title Good Evening and won another special Tony Award, as well as a Grammy Award for the album. During the run of the show, They also launched a trio of comedy albums as the working class characters Derek and Clive, which was a reworking of earlier characters they had done as Peter and Dud. Their partnership more or less came to an end after a failed 1978 comedy version of The Hound of the Baskervilles. It didn't hurt Dudley's film career, though. The following year, he starred in Ten, which was a major hit and established him somewhat improbably as a romantic leading man. His wife in the film was played by Muppet Show guest star Julie Andrews. Dudley's signature film role came a couple of years later in Arthur, the 1981 comedy in which he played a drunken playboy minded by butler John Gilgood while he pursues a relationship with Muppet Show guest star Liza Minnelli. Moore was nominated for an Oscar and won a Golden Globe for the part. He would continue to make films with varying levels of success into the early 90s, including Mickey and Maude, for which he won another Golden Globe, and a sequel to Arthur, for which he most certainly did not. In the early 90s, he co-created two television series designed to introduce classical music to new audiences, Orchestra, with an exclamation point, for British television, and Concerto for the U.S. These were followed by two ill-fated attempts at sitcoms, Dudley and Daddy's Girls, that would mark the end of his performing career. He had begun to display symptoms of a degenerative brain disease that first made it difficult for him to remember lines and later made it difficult for him to play the piano. November 2001, he made his final public appearance when he was appointed a commander of the Order of the British Empire by Queen Elizabeth II. He died the following March. Who has Dudley Moore memories? Oh, I do. (laughs) Tell us about it, Christy. Sure. I discovered the movie Arthur in high school, and I was obsessed with it. I was absolutely obsessed with it. And it's one that you really have to put on your 1981 goggles 
to appreciate. There are a lot of things about it that have not aged very well, but it has a really sort of shaggy charm to it. I, I mean, part of what I, I love about it is time traveling to an era when Dudley Moore and Liza Minnelli could be the leads of a rom-com. <laughs> like the, there's just something about that that is just utterly delightful. But yeah, no, Dudley Moore is a type that again with the late 70s early 80s goggles on I I love that couldn't exist now, which is like the like louche Englishman. <laughs> For me, he falls under the same category as like Richard Dawson. Like hmm. Richard Dawson would not get away with his shtick. I mean, certainly not like kissing people on Family Feud, but like generally speaking, like that sort of you know drunk dinner party match game tweed and turtlenecks vibe. Like there is something about Dudley Moore that like I'm like I I would love to travel to a time where you fit because i'm delighted by you but like you couldn't exist now but i also i remember seeing him on like 60 minutes or 2020 or one of those sort of news magazine shows in the late 90s after he had gotten his diagnosis for his degenerative brain disease and he talked about how devastating it was to not be able to play the piano and it was one of the saddest things I've ever seen. So I, I also carry around that sort of sad memory of like, totally more. But yeah, I I love him, but I also love him within his context. For me, like Dudley Moore was. It's, we've talked about this before. Like one of those names, one of those celebrities who just existed, and I knew who he was as a child, but I cannot possibly tell you why. There's a line from Arthur, not his, but from the movie that that was a, a staple in in my household, and like maybe it was from the trailer, and like I I knew what it was from too. I certainly never saw that movie, and I I ended up watching three movies for this episode, which I don't normally do, but I was so curious about him, and I started with Arthur, and and I also I realized that the like the image of the lasting image of him as, of, in popular culture is the character of Arthur, which has like become the the image we have of Dudley Moore. Um, when he's parodied, which it turns out is a little bit sad because before he was diagnosed with the brain issue, people thought he was just showing up places drunk and mm -hmm. like being drunk on TV. And that sort of oh, cemented geez. that, but it actually was that his brain wasn't working. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And it's a bummer. Um, and so I watched that and, and did not love it, but you know, it, he's, it, it grew on me. Like the first 10 minutes, I was like, I don't know if I can do this. And then it, it grew on me and he grew on me. And then Liza shows up and Liza's great. And then David suggested that I watch Mickey and Maude because it stars um, Anne Ranking and Amy Irving, two of my favorite actresses, and also a uh, amazing collection of 80s sitcom character actors, and Wallace Shawn and Andre the Giant, but not together. It's weird. And it was sort of terrible. And also, he is terrible to both those women who I adore. And then I watched 10, mostly because it's the movie that was like new this, this year of The Muppet Show. And, you know, it's quite famous. I've never seen it. And that was the worst of the bunch. And he's terrible to Julie Andrews. And I was like, what is happening? But here's the thing. He's also super charming. Like this became his brand because he was exceptionally good at it. And so despite not really liking any of those movies, I'm not sorry I watched them. And it, I get it. Like it, it worked. <laughs> so, and I found him very charming in this episode as well. Um, but yeah, it was interesting to sort of put like an, an actual series of performances to this sort of cartoon in my head that is Dudley Moore. Yeah, I also grew up with him sort of very present. And I think in retrospect, it's probably that my parents really liked his movies. And if they rented a movie to watch, then I probably watched it too, whether or not it was age appropriate. Um, so I definitely saw Arthur and Mickey and Maude when I was a kid, although I do not have very specific memories of them. Um, I've seen Arthur more recently, and then I also watched 10 this week. Um, but I also spent some time listening to some of his albums. Uh, if you go on Spotify, they have one. It might be a, a hits collection of the Dudley Moore Trio. Uh, and then um, I listened to one of the albums that he did with Cleo Lane, uh, and a bunch of his film scores are also available. And he is a legit artist. Like, 
this is not just an actor who who can play the piano like he could have been a superstar of the jazz world if he had put all his attention there uh and that's really you know when, when christy was talking about how they don't make him like that anymore that part really stuck out to me because like we have musicians who act and we have actors who dabble in musicianship but like i really would struggle to think of someone who who's really like top of the class in both of those categories and really had very full careers in both of those categories uh and that to me is also part of what makes him like really special and impressive and, and i think leaves a little more of a lasting legacy yeah this is all helpful context because i don't know who he is outside the muppet show and i watched arthur and Aside from his scenes with Liza and the zingers from John Gilgood, I mostly regret watching that movie. Uh, David, what did you think of the episode? Uh, I liked it. You know, we've been calling a lot of episodes lately top of the middle, and I think this is one of them. You know, there's a couple things I personally would have done differently, but uh, there's nothing egregiously bad in it. And uh, there are a couple things that are downright delightful and... uh, you know, no complaints. Michal? So, this is a frustrating one to talk about and watch and sum up. <laughs> because it is it'll simultaneously well done and unpleasant to sit through. <laughs> Just from, uh, on a personal level. Um, it's a really nicely constructed episode of The Muppet Show. There's a fun plot that pervades almost every sketch. And it directly involves the guest star. Um, so, it... it fits together nicely and it's funny and it's weird and bizarre and it gives us all these nice character moments and even though the plot is disturbing it's not because the plot didn't age well it might have aged too well (laughs) so that said how did i like this episode uh question mark upside down smiley face in tarot bang (laughs) (laughs) christy um yeah i i think i'm i'm with david on this it's very top of the middle for me I mean, the, the timeliness of the main pervasive plot it was sort of mind-blowing given the the moment that we're having. The thing that really struck me about this episode is, unlike some episodes where you, you get more bang for your buck when the guest star is not on screen, I really missed Dudley Moore when he was gone in this one. I, I I wanted more of him and less of some of the, the just Muppet shtick. It's, I feel like it's so rare that I like an episode the best. Maybe not since Peter Ustinov, but that was just like hating at least. It's the thing I've been clamoring for for weeks now, which is a, a fully cohesive plot where the backstage and the onstage and the guest star all are making the same show. It is timely and prescient and all those things. The whole is greater than the sum of its parts for me. I'm not, I'm not super enthusiastic about like any of these songs, for instance. But it it adds up to me to a, a really fun episode. Oh, Dudley, Dudley Moore, fifteen seconds for curtain, Mister Moore. Thanks, Scooter. So I'm having a bit of trouble getting this piano in tune. Can you give me an A? Sure, easy. <laughs> so. That was the sound of uh, Dudley Moore in his dressing room tuning a piano manually, which, impressive. And he asks Scooter for an A. Scooter shoots a pistol into the air, and a giant letter A clangs down into the dressing room. (laughs) And Dudley Moore gives him this little exhausted smile, which is, I think, perhaps the most adorable thing he'll do all episode. Dudley Moore makes good faces throughout this episode. He he, he has a couple good exasperated faces as well. Yeah. But why is the A in the ceiling? Why does Scooter have to shoot it? Why is it made of metal? Why is he packing heat <laughs> at all, right? And then why does he fire a gun so close to Dudley Moore's ear while he's tuning a piano? I mean, we know he's not good at his job as far as stage managing goes. Sure, sure. I just have more questions than I had laughs at this bit. Although I will say the A prop is really well made to look like metal and then combined with that clanging sound effect because sometimes Mm -hmm. those props in hd look like styrofoam with spray paint and this one was really good there's not even a in the title of the muppet show so it's not even like conceivably like from their marquee or something (laughs) 
So weird. Yeah. It would have been a more Muppet Show joke to be like, can you give me a B and then a Muppet B buzzes in yes. or something. But yeah, this, I guess it's fun for them to like take a sesame concept, like a giant letter and turn it on its head, like shoot at it. I don't know. I'm just mentally trying to insert A's into the, the title of the show. The Muppet Show. <laughs> I mean, the marquee could say with our very special guest star on it. But this is a stretch, even for us. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Stellar Waldorf's box is visited by a harbinger of creepy bugs to come later in the episode. Watch what you say tonight. I think the place is bugged. That's what creepy bugs sound like in this episode. Meanwhile, Gonzo turns into a bug, and he seems quite pleased about it. It's very David Cronenberg's The Fly. <laughs> so sparkly so disco yeah the bugs are real very, cute yeah very disco bug they make those little squishy sounds let's go backstage the Muppet Show backstage so this week our backstage plot is going to take us pretty much through the whole episode so our guest star is insisting on working with his own accompanist uh, but matter of fact the band was wondering how they're going to play your accompaniment without any arrangements band? Uh-huh. Arrangements? Sure. Uh, I don't need any arrangements. Really? How come? I've got Mama. Looks like a fugitive from Star Wars. <laughs> its name is Mama, huh? Yeah. Uh, music and mood management apparatus. Mama. Oh, it plays anything you want? Exactly. So, Mama is a robot. It's essentially a lumbering musical Dalek. Uh, decorated with a whimsical string of fairy lights, which is Syncopate. actually kind of cute. Syncopate! <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's got some R2-D2 vibes going on also, and it has, um, like, where R2-D2's legs would be are, like, giant silver musical notes, which was a really nice design touch, I thought. Yeah, I mean, it's terrifying and unsettling, but also cute in its way. And... <laughs> Dudley Moore is quite taken with it. He refers to Mama as the ultimate achievement, man's synthesis of science and art, the Sistine Chapel of Innovation. And Mama can apparently even produce uh, some warped variations on the Muppet Show theme, which Dudley demonstrates, and Kermit does this little bopping along thing. By fiddling with these thingamajigs here, I can get uh, classical... Uh, for, uh, jazz. Or disco. And then they both get into it with the disco. Dudley starts like grooving. The, the disco transitions into the at the dance music, and I was sad because I wanted a full disco Muppet Show theme. Mm-hmm. I mean, I enjoy the disco at the dance music, but we'll get to well, that. Well, me too. Um, it's interesting that these, as far as I can tell, these are real instruments uh, run through a filter and then th- also with a you know synth playing as well, but they're not, like, synthesized instruments in 1979 would not have sounded this good. Yeah, um, I don't think they had the capability of doing this full synth if they wanted yeah, to. Yeah, and it's it's a nice effect, but also leads me to a question later on that I'll I'll hold till we get there, but... To me, this this very specific moment in synthesizer technology just conjures the soundtrack to the terrifying movie version of Tommy. Um, yeah. And so like, I'm like incapable of even saying whether I like that or not, because it's just been part of my musical landscape. Like I was super into Tommy in high school. So uh, in all the different versions. And so it's just like brain shot sound, just Tommy vibes. Beans for days. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, mama is such a hit with Kermit that uh, he, uses it at the at the dance sketch which we will talk about later and then dudley has a musical number and he dismisses the band or rather he tells them to take five to which they respond seamlessly okay guys take five (laughs) hold it hold it oh i meant uh lay out I won't be needing you. I'll be doing this with Mama. 
<laughs> yeah, uh, Dudley, he does play the piano, but he's accompanied only by Mama, and the band is not wild about this development. Would you believe this? It's a musical garbage can. <laughs> Playing musical garbage. <laughs> yeah, it ain't got that swing when it's played by a thing. Still, you will know that it is being played and nobody being paid. True, true, child. Yup, the mayhem has a point there, so they confront Kermit backstage. Hey, Cricket Breath. Uh, hi, guys. Yeah, what's this electric no-man's band you're using? Oh, oh well, well you, that, that's just an experiment. That's all for it. Listen, Turtle Bait. Just because it can play for Dudley Moore don't mean it can play the rest of the show. Right, right, right. Uh, the rest of the show. Mm. Oh, boy, that's a wonderful idea. Yeah. I'll, just, I'll just plug the, uh, the background music button here. So now that Floyd has successfully talked himself out of a job, he sees Rolf starting to walk out. Rolf, hey, Rolf, where are you going? Wait a minute, man. Hey, we gotta present a solid front on this. Uh, you do the solid front bit. I'm gonna call this monkey I know who's looking for an organ grinder. <laughs> uh, well, it's a sad day for musicians. Yeah, I can almost hear Beethoven turning over in his grave. <laughs> That's Mama chiming in with all these little accompaniments. Yeah, damn it, Ralph. I know everybody has to make rent. It's tough all over, but man, get it together. So uh, Floyd and Animal accost Deadly in his dressing room, and they use the power of reasoned debate and unassailable logic and also physical violence to convince Deadly to call Mama off. I feel that that cheap jive jukebox is going to put an end to the gig for the band, man. I mean, we haven't worked all night, and it's your fault. If I Well, it comes payback at time, old man Frog going to wonder why he's paying legal tender on us. Nice. And I'm all just muttering Dudley and staring Dudley Moore in the eye is just my favorite thing about so this good. episode. Floyd is rapidly becoming my favorite character. It's not, I mean, not just his pro-labor stance, but like mm -hmm. all the different things he calls Kermit, his mm -hmm. little walk. He's used exactly the right amount um, in every episode he's been in so far. I, yeah, I'm, I'm becoming a major Floyd fan. He's definitely the like the, the low-key star of this episode. Yeah. Um, the one-two punch of him and Animal is just Oh, so perfect. Perfect. And something I actually missed both times I watched the episode and then I was editing the clips and caught it and just like a nice little story beat is that Kermit says something like, I'm, I'm going to turn on the background music switch. And that sets up everything that is about to happen. Um, both what we're about to talk about and some of the onstage stuff that like that, that actually creates a lot of the mayhem. So, so yes, the robot is bad, but also Kermit made it worse. And it's a really subtle moment. And I like, I also like that they didn't like, you know, hammer it on the head they just let it be yeah and that the the mayhem did this to themselves like they are the the heroes of this episode where yeah bad shit happens to them they dig themselves further into the hole and then they dig themselves out and then fate helps them the rest of the way out yeah it's all really nicely done and that kermit's opinion of mama changes over time i think because of the background music thing and the band being a problem yeah so even though Dudley has been convinced to call off his robot, Mama ends up doing herself in. Uh, the robot wanders onto the stage during an extremely delicate endeavor from Gonzo. Uh, Gonzo apparently has a real crazy act tonight. He won't even tell me what it is, but I do have this message. We have to ask for complete and total silence from everyone. Shh. So two things. Back to my Kermit bullshit. Uh, there's no way he would be willing to do this, to let Gonzo do an act without telling anybody what, what it was. And just, you know, in all the ways that this episode is prescient about AI and robots and labor, also cell phones and theaters, a thing that they predicted by a good 20 years. But cell phones that set off 
explosives. Well, sure. But even the first part, I guess digital watches were a thing that could have chimed on the hour. That definitely happened before cell phones. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let Gonzo explain his act. I shall now recite from the works of Percy Bysshe Shelley while, and at the same time, defusing this high-explosive bomb. (sighs) So, of course, Mama is unable to stay silent, and the bomb explodes. It takes pretty much the whole theater with it. Uh, Gonzo survives just fine, but Mama does not, and the theater sustains some expensive-looking damage. I'm very confused by the, the set. Gonzo gets blown backstage very late. Like, <laughs> this is actually really badly done in an unusual way for them. The bomb explodes and Gonzo's just standing there. And then he goes flying. And then we see him backstage and there's both rubble and, like, piled up sandbags. Yeah, they wouldn't tell Kermit what the act was, but everybody else knew to pile the sandbags. Up. I guess so, yeah. But then later on stage, there are also sandbags. It's just yeah, a very weird... Yeah, supposed to be, I don't know, just people. Well, sandbags are also, like, in you know, older theaters, the wrong, part kind of, of, it's the wrong kind of sandbag. Yeah. They're uh, very yeah. long sandbags. And they're, and they're neatly stacked. Like they're not, there's also, it's not like they just fell from the Yeah. Uh, which also happens. There's also stuff everywhere. It's just a, it was a, an odd moment that I fixated on because it's what I do. <laughs> That's what we're here for. So yeah, all's well that ends well. Kermit begs and pleads for the band to return and finish the show. Now that mama is, uh, as he puts it on the sick list, Uh, So the band does return in hard hats as the theater collapses around them. Okay, well, ladies and gentlemen, it has been a splendid evening marred only by the fact that we blew up half the theater. (laughs) But before we go, let us have one last round of applause for our very special guest, our ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Dudley Moore! Thank you very much, Kermit. It's been a real pleasure playing the remains of the Muppet Theater. Yeah, and I'm sorry to say that we broke your machine. Oh, no trouble. I, I'm happy to say I fixed it again. Oh. Uh, I'm sorry to say I liked it better when it was broken. Yup. So, all of us are in creative fields, involved in creative endeavors, <laughs> threatened to varying degrees by robots. How, how are we feeling about this plot? Hit way too close to home. One of the the weirdest things about this, and I I tried to research this and failed. I remember watching this probably about twenty years ago, around the same time that the the box set DVDs came out, and I don't so I don't remember exactly when it was or why or how I was watching it, but I know I've seen it like as an adult. And the last time I watched it, there was something happening, I think on Broadway or maybe just in general about musicians specifically. And like, you know, reducing the orchestra minimums on Broadway and or using recorded tracks. And this was, I think, like when when the the, the theatrical licensing companies were starting to, to offer tracks you could use instead of hiring musicians for your at least amateur productions. It was it was a whole thing. It, it was like 2003. Which... Yeah, they would have been around then. Yeah. Um, and so like. I mean, yes, it's it's still prescient and it's relevant to what's happening now. But the last time I watched it, it was like exactly what was happening in real life. And it was really weird. So, yeah. And here we are 20 years later and it's still really weird. And the strike is still on right yeah. now. Well, but weird on m- multiple levels, too, because like we also just had this argument on Broadway. We had a, a, mm-hmm. a show where there was outcry against there being digital music. And what's most sort of infuriating about it is like, here we are in 1979, where everyone knows it's wrong. It's so wrong that ostensibly a children's show has a whole half hour plot about how wrong it is. And yet, penny pinching idiots keep trying to make it happen in the real world. It's annoying. Yeah, well, in 1979, it was like a funny problem for the future. Right, right. Like, well, you know, in some other generation that is definitely not alive right now, people are going to have to contend with this. But like, that's a weird futuristic problem. And here we are in 2023 trying to figure out this problem. Because the music, for the most part, the coming out of Mama is, you know, squishy and synthesized and like, not quite right. Like, it's not like, you know... Mama's like 
an iPod or something, you know, like they're making fun of the quality. And like, I think that that's also part of what makes it scary now is it's like the arguments that we're having is it's like, you know, there are people who are like, Oh no, the, the quality of this screenplay that was written entirely by an algorithm uh, is fine. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Cause yeah, in the episode when Dudley is saying, this is the way of the future and Kermit's like, Oh, that's a wonderful idea. I'll have this thing play the show, even though all the notes are a little wrong. Like it's, it's funny there. And yeah, yeah, the plagiarism software of the future is not so funny. Weirdly, for an episode with a music-related plot, we don't actually have a ton of music to talk about. There's a lot of repeated music. There's a lot of just like incidental music, but we have a couple things. But the the first thing is really buggy. Well, you think you've lost your love? Well, I saw her yesterday. It's who she's thinking of. And she told me what to say. She says she loves you. And you know that can't be bad. Yeah, she loves you. Yes, our our friends, the creepy disco bugs from earlier in the episode, are now uh, performing a song by failed Skiffle Outfit the Beatles called She Loves You. Yeah, we've talked about them once or twice. You've probably heard of them out there in TV land. I do not care for this. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, this arrangement is really bad. I, I mean, I, on purpose, but yes. Yeah, but it. I mean, it also. It's just not very imaginative. That it's just like they found like two synth settings and were like, "This sounds squishy and bug like." And it's just like I, I, I was annoyed with it in the same way that I was annoyed with the the arrangement of "Take a Chance on Me." A few. Oh yeah. Ago. I like, like this better, but yeah, I see the comparison. Oh, yeah. I like this so much less than Take a Chance on Me. <laughs> well, because I just like the whole staging of Take a Chance on Me, and like at least there's a joke here. Yeah, my problem is that although these bug puppets are beautiful, they don't feel like Muppets to me. They they feel a little bit like after Beanie Babies got popular and like everyone started doing ripoff Beanie Babies, there was one company, I think Gun maybe, that was making them out of sort of like shiny LeMay uh, material. Yeah, like there was a shiny lizard beanie baby. Yeah. Like that's what these feel like to me. They don't, they just don't quite look like Muppets. They don't sound like Muppets. They don't look like Muppets. They don't. So like, what are we doing here? Also this far into the run of the show, if you're going to give us a number that doesn't star any of the characters that we already know, these characters have got to have some sort of like vibrant life to them. And, and Mm -hmm. like, and these just don't. Yeah. They don't, they're they're very static, right? They're, they're, they're literally attached to the set, right? Cause they have multiple legs and they're just sitting there and then beady eyes. Yeah. You know, they're being operated through props. My issue with them. And I feel like they're usually more careful about this is one of scale because in the opening, we see them in Statler and Waldorf's box and then Gonzo turns into one of them. And so they are, Muppet sized. And actually, we're, we're, we see them backstage after the number two, and they're the same size as everybody else. But this set is like an ear of corn and some mushrooms and some leaves, and they are bug sized in relation to those objects. So I guess like that's just a stage set, and we're not meant to believe that they're ever bug sized. But I just found it really weird that that's the setting they chose to put them in, and then also have them interact with other characters on the same plane. Because again, this is what I do. <laughs> yeah. I ruin I think, fun. <laughs> I think David is right about the eyes. It's it's hard to see them as characters when their eyes can't look at you. Well, and because they don't do anything, right? Like they don't they don't interact with each other. They don't there's no dialogue. Like we just don't know anything about them other than they are bugs and they play the song. Now, after the song, we learn a little bit more about them. If we had a little more of that kind of banter. Before the song, maybe I would have liked the song better. I don't know. 
Maybe. I mean, they're just essentially a joke played to its logical conclusion. They're beetles and they're doing buggy things. Except they aren't even really beetles. Like, they're, like... Yeah, they're just buggies. Weird buggies, yeah. And some of them are playing their bodies as instruments. Like, one of them is, like, playing his nose. One is, like, playing his stomach as a washboard. Like, it... Yeah. But we should talk about the song. We should actually talk about the song. Tell us about the song. I'm going to tell you about the song. So... Uh, so yeah, so it is in fact a Beatles song written by Lennon McCartney uh, from 1963. It will not surprise you to learn that it went to number one on both the Hot 100 and Cashbox and the UK Singles Chart, and I might add number seven on the West German Media Control Singles Chart in your area. In your area, <laughs> uh, was this one of the like four or five Beatles singles that was in the top five at the same time? Was this like the record setting? I think one? it was. Yeah. So a lot of f- fun trivia about this song. Uh, it, it is the Beatles' best-selling single of all time in the UK, as well as the best-selling single by any artist there of the entire 1960s. It was number 64 on the terrible original Rolling Stone 500 Greatest Songs of All Time list, and it was demoted to number 135 on the 2021 list. But at least it made it to the second list, unlike several songs that we've discussed. And there's a funny story about this song. Right after they initially recorded it, Paul McCartney played it for his dad. And his dad was like, it's a nice tune, but do you really need these Americanisms? Can't you change it to yes, yes, yes? And Paul McCartney was just like, dad, you don't get it. (laughs) Um, She loves you. Yes, yes, yes. It's so prim. I love it. Um, But it's also, uh, this is maybe my favorite thing about it, one of two songs that EMI made them also record in in German because they didn't think that they would hit it big in Germany singing in English. So uh, here's a clip. love it the the other one of those is i want to hold your hand uh and the german lyric directly translates to come give me your hand which just doesn't have the same ring to it and feels very <laughs> in <German>. the tom lehrer <laughs> sense i hold your hand in mine <laughs> funnily enough the song was used by detractors worldwide to like diminish and criticize the beatles they would refer to them as yeah yeah music <laughs> And I thought that was funny and yeah. cute. Who's laughing now? <laughs> uh, but you know, you fellas should find a name for your group. We were thinking of something like the Grateful Dead. The who? Nah, it's been done. I do love that, uh, unlike on Sesame Street, when they do the same joke, they never actually say the word Beatles ever. Uh, and they just trust us to get it. Which, you know, everyone's going to, especially in 1979. But I still appreciated them for it. Yeah, nicely done. You know, seeing a number like that always makes me nostalgic. Yeah? Nostalgic for what? DDT. Those were the days. So we skated past it pretty quickly uh, because it's a throwaway gag. But when Dudley Moore asks the Mayhem to take five and they play a song, it is a literal song called Take Five. And it's a, a jazz standard from the late 50s, from 1959. It was written by Paul Desmond, genius, genius alto saxophonist, uh, Paul Desmond, and recorded by the Dave Brubeck Quartet, uh, of which Paul Desmond was a member. And uh, it's called Take Five because it's in 5-4 time, which is an unusual time signature. It became a hit a couple years later. It actually hit uh, number 61 on the Hot 100. In 1961. 61 and 61, baby. Hey. Uh, And now for all you fans of the Roaring Twenties, we have one of the top hits of 1929 written by Charles Cow Cow Davenport called Mama Don't Lao. Oh, good. Cow Cow's songs are so moving. Stop doing Christy's job, Kermit. 
Yeah, between you and AI, come on, man. Jeez. Let's hear the song, though. It's it's quite cute. <laughs> Mama don't allow no guitar pleasant here. What? Mama don't allow no guitar pleasant here. It don't matter if you're flat or sharp. You're gonna wake up playing a hop, cause Mama don't allow no guitar pleasant here. Take it, Mama. It was mostly right. This is a song called Mama Don't Allow, and it was copyrighted by a guy named Cow Cow Davenport, Charles Edward Cow Cow Davenport, in 1929. But uh, according to my research, specifically according to our friends at secondhandsongs.com, although Davenport copyrighted it, it also incorporates like several traditional and previously recorded commercial songs. So, nobody else stepped up to claim it, but, I mean, it's not entirely his. Man, plagiarism is really a (laughs) underlying thing in our lives. And, yeah, Cow Cow Davenport uh, was a boogie-woogie and blues piano player and a vaudeville entertainer. And he also recorded under the pseudonyms Bat the Hummingbird, George Hamilton, and the Georgia Grinder. <laughs> hmm. Bat the Hummingbird like a verb? To bat the hummingbird? Unclear. But yeah, uh, his most famous song is actually not this. It's uh, a song called Cow Cow Blues. And Cow Cow was a reference to something called a cow catcher, which I didn't know what it was, so I had to look it up. And it's a thing that they would put on the front end of a train to like deflect things that might like get in the way of, of a track. Like if you think of what like a stereotypical old time locomotive looks like, it's the thing that like on the looks bottom, like a mustache. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just didn't know that was called a cow catcher. Yeah. I, I was disappointed to discover that his song cow cow blues is not the cow cow song that I know, which is cow cow boogie, which is written by entirely different people. What? Well, now I'm disappointed, too. I, also, I mean, if his famous song is Cow Cow Blues, I'm disappointed that I don't know it, because I do know Mama Don't Allow from multiple sources, including the 1975 Sesame Street record, Bert and Ernie Sing-Along, which, if you have not listened to the Bert and Ernie Sing-Along, stop everything that you're doing, stop listening to this podcast, and go listen to the Bert and Ernie Sing-Along, and then come back. You will not regret it. So I found out that this song is popular with jazz bands, jug bands, Dixieland bands, and skiffle outfits. <laughs> Secondhand songs uh, list versions by City Rambler Skiffle Group and the Jive Aces skif- Skiffle Combo. And those are just the ones with skiffle in their name. So th- <laughs> there's probably even more. I'm not well versed in my successful skiffle outfits. I'm, I'm only really familiar <laughs> with the failed ones. Mm-hmm. This is cute. It is cute. And so I mentioned earlier the, the, the arrangement of the Muppet Show theme played by Mama. They have made a very clear choice in this to make it sound worse. Yeah. Yeah, that was deliberate. Yeah, I know. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's cute nonetheless. The song is staged as though it's going to be an Electric Mayhem number. Uh, but of course, they are not allowed to participate because Mama don't allow no guitar playing in here. Uh, but what is interesting to me is that we see what I think of as like the typical Electric Mayhem set, the same one I think that we saw on the Linda Lavin episode. Now I need to go back to see if this was uh, an innovation then or now, but uh, there's been the addition of mirrors behind their bandstand. So you end up seeing three of them, which just makes the stage feel fuller and uh, makes the set feel a little more impressive. Like it, on its own, can look a little rinky-dink. It's made out of Tinker Toys. Um, but when there's three of them, suddenly it feels like arena rock. And I thought that was cool. Even though they don't get anything to do. and They're just kind of hanging out there. <laughs> Too bad they put up that whole set. All for them to be dismissed. <laughs> Do, 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 do
and that is an example of Dudley Moore uh, both being an amazing piano player and a very Muppety sounding singer. Is they running him through a filter? Or no, somebody else is with him? He's just singing falsetto, I think. Yeah, yeah, there's like a weird like mechanical timbre to it too, I thought, but I don't know. I think it's just the way he's harmonizing with himself that as with Mama, it doesn't sound quite right. Right. But again, deliberately. Yeah, in the closing number, thankfully, we do finally get to hear Dudley play with the mayhem. which we've talked about before we talked about it specifically when we discussed the Muppets go Hollywood. It is a major jazz standard. It was one of Ella Fitzgerald's signature songs with music by Morgan Lewis, then lyrics by Nancy Hamilton. Not that we hear the lyrics. It's from 1940. And this is just delightful. It's just great music. (laughs) Yeah. With Dudley and the mayhem rocking out in little hard hats while the theater just collapses everywhere they really should have evacuated the audience (laughs) should not be there instead they're just trying to play quietly and every time animal starts to wail on the drums more things fall on his head so past guests of the show mark blankenship uh once said that um if your broadway show has confetti or snow in act two exactly one piece will fall during act one Uh uh-huh and i call this the blankenship rule and uh there was a, a very bad Broadway musical that I will not name that um, had snow in Act Two and also a lot of explosions and gunfire. <laughs> and I noticed at some point that every time there was a loud noise, a little bit of snow would fall from the grid onto the stage. And it became the thing that sustained me through the show, <laughs> just entertaining myself. And that was almost all I could think of during this number because that was the joke. I was like, oh no, it happened for real at a show I saw. <laughs> but yeah, every time Animal plays his drums, things fall. Uh, and the previously discussed confusing sandbags. It's also funny whenever they do something like this to just remember that all of the Muppet performers are below the Muppets. So when things are falling, they're not only like hitting the Muppets, but then they're continuing to fall and hitting the puppeteers too. Yeah, Man. there's a there's a great shot in Muppets and Men of um, them all in ponchos because something was happening in the rain. And so they're all like covered and their mics have to be covered. And it was like a oh. whole thing. So I wouldn't be surprised if they were also wearing hard hats for real, even though it's, you know, it's styrofoam. Well, maybe the hats are styrofoam. There are also little rats in the floorboards because the floor is exposed because everything's falling apart. And these little rats who... Still look like aliens, as we've discussed. They don't quite look like Muppet Rats yet. But they get into it and they start dancing. It's very cute. Never mind that jazz! Listen, turkey! What? And get out of show business? So a few sketches this week. We have an at-the-dance sketch. It's been so long. And it's happening at the disco dance. And it's accompanied by this weird squishy music from Mama. And Fozzie is the only one making jokes, but he's just talking to anybody who will listen while everybody else is trying to disco dance. And he's making horrible puns. And it made me scream with joy. And also, we have the triumphant return of my favorite Muppet of the week. Hey, 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 look! It's a dancing cow! This must be a discaltech! Yes, 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 more, yes! Yes! Hey, 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 hey! Why did the duck cross the road? I don't know why did the duck cross the road! (sighs) Because he was tied to the chicken! Thank you, thank you! Yes, oh look, look, it's a dancing shark. This must be a fish contact. Ah. <laughs> ah, it's the loud lady and I love her so much. Although it's it's a different puppet. It's not the same grubby looking loud lady from season one. But it's the loud lady's voice and that's what counts. And it makes me very, very happy. <laughs> and she's not the butt of the joke this time. Fozzie just 
trying to make people laugh while they're trying to dance is the joke. But, oh, I love this sketch so much. I have weird mixed feelings about the entire rest of this episode, but this sketch I love without reservation. They didn't need to go this hard. All the costumes in this are amazing. The puppetry of people dancing is amazing. The cow is wearing a wig. Uh huh. They stage it like it's really a disco. It's not yeah. staged like a regular at the dance. Yeah. yeah. It's mm-hmm. like, it's great. Yeah. Um, and he's is wearing this like sparkly low cut number. It's very disco. I missed that. I was laughing at the <laughs> disco deck. There's a, um, there's a mirror ball uh, in the in the set that didn't used to be there, and I noticed that the bottom of it is blacked out, which I assume is because the puppeteers would reflect in it, um, and that just was a was a neat little production touch. That is neat. I was happy to see at the dance back, and I, I have been on the record before saying I particularly love it when they do at the dance with a different style for the song, where it's still mm-hmm. the song but in a different genre. Uh, but this did break format, like a regular at the dance. All the couples get to tell jokes and here was only Fozzie telling jokes or at least Fozzie doing setups. Sometimes the punchlines came from others. Uh, so that was like uh, an interesting, but ultimately unsuccessful experiment. If you ask me, this is the first time we've seen at the dance since Raquel Welch way back in episode three eleven. Hmm. Uh, but it will not be the last. In fact, we're going to get another one in our next episode. And I'm excited for that. Cause it's also okay. a theme one, but I'm not going to tell you what the theme is because I don't want to spoil it. I mean, I have a guess. Anyway, this made me happy. Also, Fozzie goes out on a a tan cue joke. He asks for a, a light brown, po- what does he say? A light brown pool, pool stick. Pool stick. stick. Yeah. And then whatnot says tan cue. So Fozzie can say, you're welcome as the curtains close. Uh, Muppets are great. <laughs> anyway, back to Mama. Um, Almost forgot about her. But she is accompanying this week's installment of Pigs in Space. That machine was sent up here to underscore this sketch. Yeah, that music was for my entrance. (laughs) Pretty big fanfare for a mere passenger hyphen scientist. Imagine what it would be for a captain. I think I'll try it. Mm-hmm. Here I go. Your captain is here. <laughs> and every time it does this sting for a link, if you're watching with captions, then it says like humiliating fanfare or something. It's a, it starts with the word humiliating. I know that. Piggy can't take the accompaniment and she announces that she's walking. And they say, you can't walk. And she says, watch me. Mama accompanies Piggy's walk with this strutting burlesque music every time she walks for like the rest of the episode. And Link and Strange Pork start catcalling her, which is distressing, but well orchestrated. So uh, more fun facts from Up Muppets and Men, uh, not about this episode specifically when they were talking about it, but apparently uh, they did a lot of the chroma key stuff live right meaning that you know the two shots were were happening at the same time you know with two different cameras on them but they they were actually like doing both filming the thing and actually sort of doing the compositing uh live on set and not in post-production and in this you can see um mama is is the entire sketch is flying outside the window every time the camera moves on the pigs in space set it like takes a second for them to adjust the camera on mama to get her in the right spot in the right angle, which is maybe not something I would have noticed before, but you know, now I know that they were just doing all of that fully live uh, on the set, which I think is kind of neat and is not how you would do it now. Uh, our UK spot this week is a sketch that takes place in Piggy's dressing room. And it's, even though it happens backstage, this is basically a Muppet melodrama, or at least that is how it is scored by Mama doing the melodrama. Piggy grandly welcomes Kermit into her dressing room and drops lots of very dramatic hints about something that Kermit can do that will make her very happy, and he knows what it is. And all of this is accompanied by very soapy, dramatic music. And at one point, Kermit starts looking around to see where the music is coming from, which is, it's always cute. There is something you can do that would make moi 
very, very happy. Well, well, tell me what it is. You know what it is. I... I do? Of course you do! You must! Oh, Piggy, are, are you trying to say... Yes! Kermit! My dressing room sink is stopped up again. I'll send Scooter up with a plunger. Good. And then eventually Mama invades the dressing room and Piggy again gets frustrated and announces she's walking. And again, her walk is accompanied by this strutting music and inexplicably Link and Strange Pork show up in her dressing room and start catcalling her again. The caption specifically called it Broadway music. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I took offense at that slightly. <laughs> so at the end when... Um... When Link and, and Julius Strangepork show up, uh, sort of down screen, uh, as though they are watching this show going on, they're they're kind of excitedly bobbing up and down. But the specific way that Strangepork is holding his hands and and moving looks extremely obscene. He's also calling Sui. Yeah. His- it's yeah, it's a, th- um, it's a whole thing. Is that something I should go back and make a gif of? Because yeah, maybe okay. I didn't notice that until my last rewatch. What a note to end on. Television is wonderful. <laughs> well said. So they blew up half the theater. At least they blew up the right half. There. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of Muppeturgy. Join us in two weeks for our discussion of the Arlo Guthrie episode. You can find us on social media at Muppeturgy or on the web at Muppeturgy.com. You can buy our merch at Muppeturgy.com slash store. Our theme music was composed and performed by Christy Bauer. Our show logo was created by Todd Brian Backus. And this episode was edited by me, David Levy. I think we need to make top of the middle t-shirts. <laughs> Where on the body does the text fall? <laughs> Cross the butt. <laughs> top of the middle to you. <laughs>